Again, we are pleased to have Bishop Allison uh, preach to us today. Uh, Bishop Allison hails from Georgetown, South Carolina, where when he's not uh, fighting invasive uh, plant species in the rice fields or wrestling or treating alligators for lead poisoning, uh, he is uh, preaching and writing, and we are blessed uh, by your ministry, Bishop Allison. Again, welcome. Bishop Allison will preach to us after we stand and sing hymn 685, Rock of Ages, verses 1 and 2. O wounded hands of Jesus, build in us thy new creation. Our pride is dust, our vaunt is stilled. We wait thy revelation. O love that triumphs over laws, we bring our hearts before thy cross to finish thy salvation. Amen. The object of these talks during this Holy Week is to enable us to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that does not sound like a good Episcopal end, and I do not mean the kind of personal relationship with Jesus that some people claim that they've just had lunch with him and trump anything else you say because he's just talked to them. But I do want us all to have a deeper personal, and that is not an impersonal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first step of this was yesterday, a new view of repentance. Uh, that I have suggested that repentance does not mean what the Greek language has misled us to believe, that it means change of mind. That is metanoian, metanoian, change of mind. No, it is something else. It is the change of our hearts. It's true of the Old Testament, it's true of the New Testament, it is not true of the Greek language. They had no word for it. So I gave you a word that that was not a word until yesterday. Uh, And it's called metacardia, a change of heart. And the heart, what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind will justify. So that is the root of what needs to be done about the heart that Jeremiah tells us is deceitful above all things. So it is our heart we ought to bring before the cross to finish our salvation. And it is instead of mere regret and mere remorse, it is the renewing of the power to love. So I do hope you have been given a new way to look at repentance. Today is the second step, and it is much more difficult. It is knowing the righteousness of God. This is the hardest thing for people today. We have, as a culture, lost any sense of the majesty of God. When Luther first celebrated the Lord's Supper, he trembled in fear and almost fainted. When your speaker, I myself, celebrated my first Holy Communion, I was merely nervous 
about breaking the rubric. Like Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. How can I speak about the justice of God as one who has never trembled before God like Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and John and Paul? How can I speak to a people in a culture that is full of terrible but acceptable blasphemies against Almighty God to a people who do not tremble to a people who know not the awesome majesty of God I can only concede my lack of humility in the presence of my unclean arrogance that has not let me tremble in his presence adequately. I tell you, I am thus unworthy to speak in his name. I can only pray that the Lord's majestic and transcendent justice may somehow come through by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us something of that humility to make us tremble. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm fond of saying our righteousness is gossip righteousness. I contend that gossip is that fond hope that God will Grade on a curve. (laughs) If you're in a class and passing is 70 and you make 60, maybe the teacher will grade on a curve. So we go around with our friends and find, Jane, what did you make on the test? Well, I made a 95. Jane is no longer a friend. (laughs) If we can just find some down around the 50s and the 40s, that would help so much. And that's why we, we read what we read. And that's why papers print what they print. Because we think that gossip is... The way God will grade on a curve and by gossip, we can be righteous. I tell you, no. God does not grade on the curve. This second step is God's righteousness. It's not something I've been thinking of. And I had a very uncomfortable personal experience along this line. I was sitting innocently in my pew, and we have a great preacher at Prince George in Georgetown, South Carolina, and he was preaching on Amos. And it was a good sermon, but my mind began to wander a bit, I'm sure it is yours doesn't, 
And I had to go to a House of Bishops meeting. And I began to compare myself with my colleagues in the House of Bishops. And I was coming out real well. (laughs) And then that preacher quit preaching and went to meddling in Poet Amos' plumb line right down into my pew. I almost wept. I thought I had written the book on justification. And here, everything I thought I believed, everything I had taught, I was contradicting, trying to establish my righteousness at the expense of others. By comparison with others, our righteousness is still as filthy rags. So I went home and fished into my carpenter's box a plumb line. And hung it on the second floor of my house so that it comes right down in front of the stairs that you see when you open the door. And that was ten years ago. After two years, Martha said, Fitz, can't we take it down? And I said, yes, uh, we can take it down anytime there's no more self-righteousness in this household. <laughs> it is still there, and you may see it when you come to see me. The righteousness and justice of God is that ineffable awesomeness that has created and holds together the incredible vastness of the universe and the irreducible complexity of nature and the marvel of our own bodies. In the face of God's justice, we can cry for forgiveness. I can forgive you. And you can forgive me, but neither of us can forgive sins. The Jews were right when they rebuked Jesus for claiming to have forgiven sins. For only God can forgive sins. And of course, that was his declaration that he was God. I am no I am ordained by the church to declare and pronounce God's forgiveness. But no mere human can rectify God's righteousness, the order and universe and the slapped face and the slammed door and the destructive lie and the other consequences of sin against divine justice. True forgiveness is never cheap, and God himself is no cheap God who merely winks at sin. Only God can fix what sin has done and right it again. Jeremiah was right, rightly said, our hearts are deceitful above all things. And Isaiah has rightly said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of a people with unclean lips. And God is righteous, and God is just, and we are not. Have we not a right to say, woe is me? Martin Luther, who rightly trembled in the presence of God, was terrified in the face of the very phrase that is our second step. 
the justice of God. In his own words, he said, I greatly long to understand God, Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in my way except that one expression, the justice of God. God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped the justice of God. Is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith? To put it more simply, he saw a very simple thing that none of us seems to see until it is disclosed to us. That the justice of God is not a mere adjective, it is a verb. It is the justice of God by which he forgives sins. It is the justice of God by which he gives us mercy. God is just, like a clean housewife is clean. When Hurricane Hugo hit South Carolina, there was 43 inches of mud and flood in our whole first floor. I learned that a freezer and a refrigerator will float <laughs> and the contents will be spilled on the floor to meld with the mud. And my wife and I began to clean it up. And she is a clean housewife and she looked a mess in ten minutes. It was all over. And me too. She was a clean wife because she was too fastidious to ever get dirty. Is God righteous and so righteous he is too fastidious ever to take upon sin? I tell you, no. God is righteous. He is righteous in Jesus the Christ in whom we ought to have a personal relationship. God took upon himself this sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, and cleaned it up, but taking the dirt with him. Jesus said that he was once said about himself that he was a door, that Jesus was a vine. That Jesus was a gate. Are you offended when I am to tell you that Jesus was a mop? How do you mop a floor? You mop it, but you have to do something else. 
You have to squeeze it out. And it was squeezed out. Tomorrow, on a cross, your dirt, my dirt, and the consequences of that dirt, which is death, all squeezed out and buried on that cross. So Christ, our righteousness, delivers the justice of God from the awesome threat and terror and shows us that God's justice is declared in the forgiveness of sins, in the redemption of the world, in the mercy he gives us because of Christ and pays the necessary price to enable it not to offend in the last word, God's justice. This is Jesus, the Christ. And you have a full personal relationship with Jesus, the Christ. Amen.